We're going to spend a little bit of time this evening um, thinking on the, the subject or, or the question, one of the, the key objections to Christian faith, the claim that there can't be just one true religion. Picture the scene. You're having a conversation with colleagues at, at work during your lunch hour. The conversation comes, as it sometimes does, around to the subject of religion or of faith. And one of your, your colleagues says, how could there be just one true faith? It's arrogant for anyone to say that one religion is superior and to try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all religions are equally good. They're valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. That's right, another colleague chips in. The belief that one religion is the true religion isn't only narrow, it's dangerous. It leads, it leads to endless division and finally to violence. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, then the world will never know peace. One of the biggest problems that people have today with Christianity is its claim to exclusivity. Christianity claims to be the one true religion. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Tim Keller tells of a time when he was invited to be the Christian representative on a panel in a local college, a discussion panel, along with a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim imam. And the panelists were discussing uh, the differences among the religion. He says that the conversation was courteous, it was intelligent, it was respectful in tone. But these guys had to agree that there were fundamental differences between their three faiths. A case in point was the person of Jesus. They all agreed with this statement. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God in the right way. But if Muslims and Jews are right and Jesus is not God but simply a prophet or a teacher, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as love really is, as God really is. The bottom line, says Keller, was that we couldn't be equally right about the nature of God. People all over the world today believe that religion is a major barrier to world peace. Especially problematic, I think they would say, are the, the traditional big world religions, those that claim to be exclusive and superior to each other. I, I think sometimes people oversimplify this issue when they blame religion for all war and violence in the world. But I agree in principle that religion does contribute to violence throughout our world. I think what happens is that religion can produce feelings of superiority within its followers. Followers of religions often separate themselves from other people. 
and then they caricature or stereotype the followers of, of other religions. And quite often that's the first step on a road that, that leads to oppression and finally violence. Because of this dynamic, cultural and political leaders the world over have taken steps to address this divisive nature of religion. And this evening, to have a, a look at this question of there can't only be one true religion, I want us to think for a few moments of some of the efforts that have been made to deal with how religion divides us. Let's think for a moment about some of these ideas and how successful they've been. You could, first of all, you could have a go at outlawing religion. You could condemn it. Or at least, thirdly, you could radically privatize it. So let's think about each of those three options. The simplest thing to do with religion, if it's causing trouble in society, is to get rid of it. There have been a few massive efforts to do that uh, in recent history in the 20th century. The Soviet Union, communist China, the Khmer Rouge, their regime, and in a different way, Nazi Germany. There's four to, to name just a few. All of these regimes aimed to, to have a tight grip on religious practice so that it wouldn't lead to a divided society and that it wouldn't undermine the power of the state. Tell me this. How did they get on? Do you remember these regimes of, as places of peace and of harmony and of human flourishing? Probably not. In his book, The Twilight of the Gods, or The Twilight of Atheism, sorry, Alistair McGrath points out that the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history. The greatest intolerance and violence of that century was practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. So there's something happens when people try to, to shut down religion because of the problems it causes, that new problems arise in its place. At the same time that these regimes were doing their utmost to push uh, religion out, there was another widespread belief in the late 19th and early 20th century that religion would simply die out as time passed and the world became more modern and technologically advanced. But again, this theory is, is starting to be questioned and discredited. The reason for that is that virtually all major world religions are growing in their number of adherents. Christianity's growth, particularly in the developing world, has been explosive. So, for example, did you know that there were six times more Anglicans in Nigeria than in the U.S.? There are more Presbyterians in Ghana than in the U.S. and Scotland put together. Korea, in the space of 100 years, has gone from being 1% Christian to being 40% Christian. So we're building up a picture here. The attempts to kill off religion have failed. Statistics have shown that on a world stage, rather than dying off, religion is actually very much alive and well and growing. So religion, it turns out, isn't a temporary blip 
on the curve of human progress, something that's soon going to be a fading memory. It seems to be a permanent aspect of the human condition, that we long to worship God or a God or, or something. That's a hard pill for, for some secular, non-religious people to swallow because they like to think that they're in some sort of a, a modern majority, that they are the mainstream, that those who have some sort of belief uh, are, are simply benighted and stuck in the past. But it seems that on a world stage, atheism is very much out on a limb. And there's no reason to expect that that's going to change anytime soon. So, so religion, it seems, can't be killed off by state control. Is there a better way to get rid of the divisiveness of religion? What about we tried by education and by argument to create an environment where it's considered outrageous, where it's considered certainly not politically correct to claim that your religion is the true religion? We could state some and restate some particular beliefs to the extent that they eventually begin to sound just like common sense. Anyone who disagrees with this way of thinking would be treated as, as a fool or a danger to society. In case you haven't recognized it, I'm describing the Britain that we live in in 2011. What are the, the beliefs that are bandied around today that undermine the exclusive claims of Christianity? Take, for example, the idea that all religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. That's the kind of thing I think you, you might find in a conversation on the metro bus down into Belfast with someone who's chosen to turn their back on, on Christian faith or chosen to have no belief. They're all basically the same. Do we really believe that? David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Those religions that required child sacrifice. Has our relativism gone to the extent that we say that that's all okay? All religions are basically the same. I would say the great majority of people wouldn't, wouldn't in the end take that line. Maybe people who say all religions are the same are talking about the, the big major faiths. They're talking about Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, and they say that they're all very much the same. The doctrinal differences between these religions aren't really important. The God they worship, these religions, is the same God. They just worship him in different ways. There's the, there's the same all-loving spirit in the universe at the heart of it all doesn't matter which religion you choose to worship that God. I think that's probably a pretty commonly held view. The only problem with that position is its massive inconsistency. It says on the one hand that it doesn't matter what people believe about God, and yet that, that very belief is very much at odds with what the people of all of these faiths believe. Buddhists don't believe 
in an all-loving spirit at the center of the universe. They don't believe in a personal God at all, so they believe something very, very different. Jews, Christians, Muslims all believe in a God who holds people accountable for their beliefs and their practices. He can't be reduced to an all-loving spirit in the universe. So you begin to see that this, this view, this, this idea that doctrine, what we believe about God, isn't important, actually doesn't make sense of any of the beliefs of the people involved. In, in the end, this is a specific view of God. It's promoted as being superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of most of the major religions. And so what you find here is that people who say, you shouldn't believe anything too clear-cut about God, have very clear-cut beliefs themselves about who or what God is. Friends, the truth is, it's no more narrow to believe that one religion is right than it is to believe that all religions are equally valid. Everyone's exclusive about their beliefs about religion. But we're exclusive in different ways. We've thought about efforts to kill religion off. We've thought about attempts to condemn it as as politically incorrect and to make it irrelevant. The third and final approach we're going to look at briefly is the approach that forces people to keep their religion private. And again, there's a lot of this in our culture So I hope you recognize it as I describe it. This approach says that people can follow whatever religion they like. They can share it with whomever they like, so long as they keep it out of the public sphere. So long as it doesn't influence your behavior in public. I think when you hear that, it probably sounds very rational and objective and probably very sensible. Let's get all those religious guys to leave all their hang-ups behind and then we can get out with what then we can get on with working out what works best for everyone in society that's going to create an enlightened society with all this divisiveness and fighting behind us let's find out what works best leaving all that religion stuff behind what if we disagree about what works best What if we have an entirely different view about what human life's about? And what if this entirely different view leads us to some very different opinions about life's big issues, say about abortion or assisted dying? You see, everyone, whether they're religious or not, holds a set of deep-seated beliefs about what life is really all about. And that's the basis for their decision-making in the public sphere. Keller puts it like this. When you come out into the public sphere, it's impossible to leave behind your convictions about ultimate values. He says, let's take marriage and divorce laws as a case study. Is it possible to create an entirely neutral set of laws that we all agree work and are independent of our own particular worldview commitments? I don't believe so. 
Your view of what's right will be based on what you think the purpose of marriage is. If you think marriage is mainly for the rearing of children to benefit the whole of society, then you'll make divorce very difficult. If you think the purpose of marriage is more primarily for the happiness and emotional fulfillment of the adults who enter into it, you'll make divorce much easier. The divorce laws you think will work will depend on your prior beliefs about what it means to be happy and fully human. There is no objective, universal consensus about what that is. Do you see the difficulty of the notion that we can privatize religion? In the end, that's simply a call from those who don't adhere to a religious worldview for the rest of us to move over and let them have the public space. It's every bit as much an oppressive stance as the stance they say they're trying to replace. We spent a lot of time this evening thinking about the divisiveness that religion can cause, the efforts that have been made in the past to, to bring that situation under control. All these efforts are failing in the present and, and they seem doomed to fail in the future. As I close, I want to make a case for Christianity as the hope of the world. Robust, biblical Christianity as the ultimate vehicle for peace on earth. Christianity has within itself a remarkable power to, to explain and to deal with the divisive tendencies of the human heart. You see, Christianity provides a firm basis for respecting people of other beliefs. Christian believe, Christians believe that all human beings are made in the image of God, that they're capable of goodness and of wisdom and they're capable of recognizing that goodness and wisdom when they see it. And because we believe that all people are created in the image of God, we expect to see behavior in non-Christian people that shows God. We expect to see that. I hope we know that as Christian people. Christians respect people who don't share their beliefs because they share our God-given humanity. I wonder how well we understand that in Ulster. The Christian call to respect every other human being, regardless of how different their worldview is to ours. Bible-believing Christians can bring peace because they respect those who don't believe. Bible-believing Christians bring peace, secondly, through their humility. Most people believe that if there is a God, the way you get to meet that God is through living a good life. That's pretty universal across most of, of world religious patterns. It's a moral improvement view of things. If I get better, I get closer to God. Christianity teaches the exact opposite. Jesus doesn't come and tell us what we can do 
to be made right with God. He comes and he tells us that we're stuffed. And without him, we can never know God. If we're going to be saved, he'll have to do it. And he does do it at the cost of his own life. And the end result of this is that Christians never face the world with any sense of moral superiority. We fully expect to find non-Christian people who are much, much better than we are. Christians are humble before people who don't believe. Bible-believing Christians bring peace to this world through their respect, through their humility, and finally through their service. It's a wonderful truth of Christianity that while it's exclusive in terms of its views of, of how we are made right with God only through the one man, Jesus Christ, it's entirely inclusive about who can be welcomed into that who is to be loved and who is to be served in the name of God. At the heart of our faith is a man who dies for his enemies. And while he does it, he prays for them. That God would forgive them for what they're doing to him. Any Christian who reflects even momentarily on how Jesus lived and then finally died for his enemies, will have a humble and serving spirit towards those who disagree. We cannot act with oppression or with violence. We're compelled to love our enemies and to serve their best interests. Folks, this has been... Uh, a long start this evening because I wanted to introduce this series a little as well. To the objection that says there can't be just one true religion, we say, why not? To the criticism that religion leads only to division, we take our hats off and we say, yes. At times it has been so. At times the church has done great injustice in the name of Jesus Christ. But we also say this. We're going back to our roots. We're rediscovering Jesus Christ himself who died to make his enemies his friends. He is our Savior and our Lord. And we continue to believe that he's the only hope for this world. Let us pray.